A Bit Lit, celebrating creativity and research of all kinds. Catherine, hello. Hello. Nice to, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Very nice to meet you. Um, we start our films by asking contributors to introduce themselves and to tell us about their work. So would you mind doing that, please? Yes, that's fine. Um, my name's uh, actually Catherine Wilcox. I write under a pen name. So Catherine Fox is my pen name. Um, and I write, I suppose, what's normally described as cassock rippers. So racy books that are basically set in the Church of England in, in all its various forms. Um, I also teach creative writing at Manchester Metropolitan University as part of the Manchester Writing School, which is a, a, a big master's programme in creative writing. Um, and I specialise in, I suppose, innovative new ways of getting fiction out to the public, um, most recently via the crazy project of blogging novels in weekly instalments, which is kind of a, a take on the, a modern take on um, the Victorian serialised novel. I hadn't thought about it like that. I, I really love that. On, on your blog, um, you talk about George Eliot and the very different relationship you have with your writing material if you're writing in the second half of the 19th century, but about the first half of the 19th century. Uh, and I guess, you know, uh, it's really interesting to hear you make that parallel now, but uh, one of the things that's extraordinary about your writing is in, in your most recent novels, your willingness to place yourself and your characters and your narrative events uh, and your readers right in the middle of what is happening now, the kind of nowness of writing. <laughs> yes, yes, it's kind of the extreme form of, uh, I don't know, writing right up to the wire, really, um, a tightrope walking. I remember as, at one point when I was still living in Liverpool and, and, and wrestling, this is, I think, the early stages of um, writing Realms of Glory, um, and then a, a massive storm in a church teapot brewed up and it was really controversial and really difficult to engage with and write about um, and thinking I've got to do justice to all these different things it's like walking a tightrope and as I was thinking I was walking through Liverpool and there was literally a guy on a tightrope playing a violin so he I thought that's that's what I'm trying to do I'm trying to entertain while simultaneously do this high wire act feeling that it could all fall apart at any moment um so it's it's you know you do need nerves of steel i think to some extent um but i did learn that craft uh, i think with hindsight um by years as a weekly columnist for the church of england newspaper where every week at say i i can't even remember where the deadline was say perhaps sunday night i needed to post 2000 words on a riff on my life and what's going on in the church and a funny thing happened on the way to the, to the vicarage kind of um, sidelong um, humorous insights into contemporary Christianity and life. Um, and every week I think I felt I've nothing left to say, <laughs> but I went ahead and said something anyway. So that, that um, writing to a deadline for a, for a specific audience um, with certain expectations in mind, that became a kind of ingrained. It was like a, a new pathway in my brain, I think. So for me to, to blog in a novel in that weekly way without a particularly clear sense of what, what was going to happen next uh, wasn't as scary as it might be for, for conventional novelists, I think. Okay, yeah, it's really interesting. So um, in this film, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that and I'd love to hear more about your teaching at Manchester Met um, and to think about teaching students um, to think about new ways of reaching the public. I think we'll come to all of that. Um, it also, the issues you're raising now have real affinities I think with um, the project that you and I are now speaking on a, a bit later which was set up in response to lockdown and we also post weekly updates. I'm super lazy so I haven't got to do anything other than talk to someone else uh, like yourself who <laughs> provides all the content for me um, but it's sort of similar. That's a cunning plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I recommend it um, uh, and whenever I do these films I always have to um, not uh, overly wave pom-poms at the people I'm speaking to and embarrass them by being too enthusiastic but there's no way I can avoid doing that with you so I apologize but um, your novels absolutely got me through 20 20 and and before but particularly 2020 and I'm I'm really interested to think about your work as a kind of lockdown reading in that you have a narrator 
and a narrative voice who's quite self-conscious and quite explicit about not wanting to go past certain geographical boundaries and going out of the local community. I think that's that's really fascinating. And in your first book, you have a protagonist in Mara who is desperate to fly. And your Linchester narrator never stops flying. And I don't think your narrative voice ever does any walking, um, but it's really fascinated <laughs> with, with, with walking, uh, sorry, with flying and with birds and with supernatural beings in the sky, but at yeah. the same time, interested in this kind of lockdown uh, locality, yeah. I suppose. Yes, I, I think the flying sort of developed in, um, I hadn't really thought of it for, for ages that I had that in my first novel. So it's, I think novelists probably only get a certain number of themes that they're obsessed with. Um, and we return to them um, like a dog to its vomit. <laughs> but um, no, I just think we, we, we can't, because we haven't finished everything we want to say about, about some, the idea of, of flying um, and the, the idea that maybe somewhere in our, the random bits of, of genetic coding that, that are now defunct, there, there are, are sort of bird genes that, that, that the knowledge of how to fly is, is somehow encoded in our, deeply in our, in our very, the heart of our DNA. Uh, that's probably a bit fanciful, but, but I don't know. So I, I have dreams of flying, lots of people do. And I think, well, how do we know what that is like? How do we know how to fly in our dreams? Um, as if we have some kind of deep race memory of it. And it does, I think, chime in really well with, with the idea of the spiritual and, and soaring to realms that we can't see. Um, and the idea, I suppose, of, of, of liberation from the constraints of gravity and mortality, it all, it all kind of resonates together. Um, but I think I used it as a, as a narrative device. Um, it was all part of the um, tremendous liberty of abandoning current good practice of show, not tell, in which um, the writer sort of deletes very carefully any trace of their presence in the narrative and it's and presenting it as if as if it's unmediated somehow which of course is a huge contrivance all novels don't just kind of generate themselves in the ether and appear on the page if only they did but um <laughs> saved me a lot of trouble um so so the idea that you would have to kind of smooth the transition from one scene to another in your in your novel um or, or show how, without telling the reader, show the, the, the character moving from one scene to another. I just say, oh, I can abandon all that. Say, so, right, dear reader, I'm now going to whisk you away to the other side of the diocese. So we don't have to worry about the logistics of how the characters get there because uh, that is not that kind of a book. So that was just hugely liberating. Um, uh, and I think um, the the... The idea of blogging in real time just gathered momentum. So the first blog novel was um, Acts and Emissions, which arose out of a, a novel I've been trying to write for about seven years, but failing because I was trying to write it in this conventional show, don't tell, with a strong central female protagonist. But the main storyline, obviously, is about two men. Um, and there was no way that I could get that, use my normal narrative vehicle of the strong female protagonist. Unless she had her ear <laughs> pressed to the wall of the bedroom, um, it was just it was just logistically, structurally impossible to pull off. I tried several times and every time my agent knocked it back and said, nah, I can't sell this, I don't, it's not working, I don't like it, I'm not enthusiastic about it. So in a, in a way it was, a, I just thought I've got this vast, world of a novel I've got all the characters I've got the plot line I've got the setting um I could just ransack that and just write for the sheer joy of writing a kind of soap opera and tongue-in-cheek Victorian novel with a Victorian style narrator um, and I'll just just carve up what I the material I've already got and rehash it in this form and see if I just put it out there and see if anyone likes it um, and I never I never cut and paste pasted from the original failed novel. I just used it um, as, a, as, a, as a big kind of baggy resource. 
um, imaginative, and I just drew on that. So I knew the story, and I wrote it, and I thought, oh, I'll, I know, I'll tether it to the church here and pretend it's happening in real time. And, and then when things crop up, like Mrs. Thatcher dying, um, Nelson Mandela dying, um, I'll, the characters would be talking about it, therefore it needs to appear in the novel. Um, and then that continued in the second novel, which I also had a bit of a plot, a much stronger concept of a plot for, which was who will be the new bishop of Linchester? So it was about the church's uh, appointment processes. Um, and then there were a couple of relationships and, and it, which brought in the current debates in the church about marriage and civil partnership, um, highly contentious, obviously. Um, but again, it was it was still the, the topical comments and components of that were, were really just by way of giving texture and, and a sense of reality to the books. Um, but when it came to the third one, which was 2016, the, I didn't really have much of a plot. I had a big theme and I knew that one character would have died by the end of it. And I interestingly knew the last word of the novel, which has never happened to me before. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll just launch out and stay close to the characters and, and weave in anything, anything that's happening in the political world. So <laughs> as you can imagine, it was completely overwhelmed by Brexit and then by the election in the United States and the, our mounting horror for people of, of my kind of political persuasion, as we saw in seemingly in horrible slow motion, the inevitability in the wake of Brexit, it felt linked somehow that Trump was going to get in. And so able to capture it sort of in the very week of it happening, those political events and how they felt. So in the week of the referendum, um, I wrote half of that instalment before we knew the results, because I knew that whatever, whichever way it went, I wouldn't be able to recapture what it felt like not to know. And I'm really glad I did that. Um, so it, that prepared me for blogging this year, it will last year in 2020. So it just became increasingly clear to me there was only one, one major plot line in 2020, which was the pandemic. And I was writing, I think about three weeks with about two or three weeks of hindsight, rather than just one week, which I was doing in the earlier one. Um, and it enabled me to work out what I was thinking and feeling and to capture what seemed to me to be in the air. Obviously for people of my kind of background, I, I couldn't really easily imagine myself into how the pandemic has felt, say for frontline workers or for people on benefits. I tried to include their point of view, but I couldn't really inhabit that. And, and also the normal ways of going out and researching stuff like that is go out, let's go out and meet people, talk to them can't do that so I had to read and observe um, so that's that made this big um, slightly fragmented narrative but then I think that captures our experience of lockdown and working from home that we see our colleagues and friends um, as little tiles on our on our computer screens and, and that's what the narrative ended up feeling like it, I would go limp almost from one one character to another in, in their little worlds, isolated from one another. So it's been an extraordinary writing experience. And I think it gathered along the way a readership of people who found consolation in seeing their experience um, kind of um, almost rinsed through the kind of washing machine of, of fiction uh, and, 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 and hung out then, okay, here, here are, here's what it was like for these characters. It was just odd that that should be consoling because we know, we know that that bit of it is made up. But I think what fiction does is impose some kind of, not exactly order, but, but it's reflected upon. So, it's, so I think that's what fiction is. It's, it's life lived and reflected on and then transformed 
into uh, a story about imaginary characters. So that's really what I was doing. And it's, it's been really interesting, but it nearly killed me. <laughs> I'm pleased it didn't do that. Um, <laughs> well, that's an exaggeration. Obviously, here I am, alive and well, and very fortunate. I'm always conscious, I think, of, of how how uh, privileged my experience has been in this last year. I've been shielded in so many ways from, from the, you know, the work. I haven't had to go into work. I've been able to work from home, able to teach online. Um, I live in a big house. I've got a big garden. Um, and uh, because I'm not spending money on train fares and coffee, I've not been short of money. And it's, that's just, it's been so uneven and unfair how this has played out. So it's not at all been a level playing field. And I think we're all really conscious of that. We are, absolutely. Um, you mentioned Trump, and I guess I should clarify for people who'll be watching this some time after we film this conversation, but we're speaking the day after the inauguration <laughs> of Joe Biden. So Trump is now historical, yes. at least his presidential period is, uh, is historical. Right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I'm turning around in my mind the possibility of, of a follow-up mm. novel. So by the time this, this film is aired, it, it, that might be a done deal, um, because it seems to me that, that we've only got half the plot. So <laughs> Tales from Linford ends halfway through the story. Um, so um, I'm turning around in my head the possibility of a, of a rather different um, fictional project of, of a series of 12 stories, one per month. So I will have to revisit this, this period of um, what, what the begin, what January 2021 has been like. Yeah. And I'm already thinking, oh no, <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> but that's, that's normal. That's normal for this type of writing, I think, that sense of the impossibility of it. And then each, each week think, oh, okay, that's that. I did, I did manage it after all. Yeah. I hope it's going to be each month rather than each week. <laughs> well, good luck. Um, there, there are certain parts, qualities of your writing I'd really like to talk about, but um, I first feel like I, sh I should pick up on what you've already said. Um, and in a way, what I'd like to do is report back what I think I've just heard um, to check if I've understood it and then to ask you to tell us about its implications. But yeah. it, it sounds like there's a kind of a shift in the compositional challenge and the compositional process of writing these books where you went from two earlier books which were able to draw on some fairly substantial source material in the form of the earlier versions of these fictional characters' lives. And the challenge there was to then, um, in fact, you used the phrase of pretending it's happening in real time. And then suddenly yes. books three and four, not only were you yourself part of that real time, but presumably by coincidence, you managed to pick the two, the two years, 2016 and 2020, which kind of have become... Yes. Oh, no! <laughs> I take full responsibility. <laughs> but they've become so yes. significant, we can just mention those years in a way that we can't with 2019, 2050. Yes, because who knows what happened in those years? <laughs> Nobody really remembers. No, it's... So, in a way, it's an extraordinary... Um, well, either a poison chalice or a gift to the writer. So I think a lot of um, writers have, have felt an urgency in writing quickly about, um, about 2016 and Brexit. So you've got the Ali Smith Quartet, um, which came out in publishing terms very rapidly, and also Maggie G's um, book. Blood. That's the one which I had momentarily forgot, don't tell Maggie, <laughs> um, which I read and sort of devoured. But again, it really hot on the heels of the actual current events. So I think inevitably um, what looms as a challenge for most writers of fiction is, oh, no, I've got to write a COVID novel. And, uh, alongside the, the deep sense, nobody wants to read it. It was bad enough living it. So in a way, perhaps I've stolen the march. I've <laughs> got it out of the way. Um, um, in real time, but it's almost as if I, I currently don't know how else to write. This is how I write. Um, so maybe after this year, I will take a break, mm. unless something worse comes along, heaven forfend, um, which of course, it, you know, it really could. Mm. It really could. Um, and I think this is what the pandemic has shown us. There is nothing to, to say another variant or, or different type of in, infection is going to jump from another species into the 
human realm and just spread the way COVID has. I don't think we've necessarily worked out how to, we're better at it. Mm. And some countries are clearly better at it than others. Um, but but we, we're not now bulletproof. Mm. And we also so, don't know what, we don't know what the political or social responses will be. It feels like 2016 was part of a long history of the 2008 financial crash. And, um, yeah. you know, COVID could spark really positive political and social change, but it could also spark change that we do not find positive. Yes. And I think in the background to all this is, is the challenge of, of climate extinction. Yes, absolutely. So, I don't know if, uh, if um, mm, don't know what I'll be writing. It's it's and a lot of um, there's kind of the writers' rebel movement is is talking about um, these very challenges and writing urgently now, finding ways to harness the the um, the power of of literature yeah. to to that end. Um, that's not been my focus, but obviously you can't ignore it. Mm. You really can't. Yeah. Um, so it, we'd like to, perhaps. <laughs> yes. But um, you're absolutely right about that. And you mentioned other novelists writing Brexit books, and presumably there will be COVID books to come. But that feels slightly different to your project, because your project is... is you're committing to your projects before Brexit, Trump and COVID come along. So they're not... Um, they're not by design about those topics. No, what you're no, they're not. Is time and season and a particular year and a particular kind of liveness. Um, yes, I, so I think with I decided to do the Tales from Linford. I decided I will do this in in 2020 because I haven't I clearly haven't finished what I need to think and say and write about these characters and their situation. Um, I wanted to move the focus from um, the cathedral close into more ordinary parish experience. Um, so away from Linchester into Linford. But that, so that was really all, the only plan I had. And I had hoped to, to create a podcast, so to podcast a series of stories. Um, but then my inability to find out in time how to do this. So, by the, so I was making notes all the way through January, planning towards writing a January sto story. And it, it I, I, so obviously I was paying attention to things I, which might have passed me by otherwise. So I, I, so the first story, which I wrote a rough draft of in February, ended with the line, and in a far-off province of China, a horseman of the apocalypse sets forth to ride with barely a jingle of harness. Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> but I didn't know then whether that was prescient or not, and it was. Um, and I was still thinking, oh, I'll, I'll turn this into a podcast. But then I thought, no, I just need to get this out there, there quickly and I need to, I'll need more, more than just 12 stories, I'll need to blog it each week. So the first, the January episodes went live in the middle of March, which coincidentally was was when public worship was suspended and all churches were closed. So that Sunday evening of the first Sunday when there was no public worship for 500 years, I hadn't planned it like this, but there was the first instalment, by which time it was clear that, that that horseman of the apocalypse was having a field day and that this was something really, really serious. Um, and that was the plot. I didn't really have much of another plot I had, a, I had an idea about maybe um, an idea of an unconventional family bringing a baby into the world. Um, I think that was the only plot line. <laughs> oh, yes, there was another one about, about what Jane, my, one of my favourite characters, um, uh, some mystery about her, her family tree that was going to be revealed in this volume, but it's now reserved for the next volume because I, I couldn't cram it in in, in the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's tantalising and exciting. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it sounds like the compositional process is much closer to improv or ad-libbing, or at least kind of a, a, a liveness and a, a suddenness 
of writing very different to the kind of George Eliot process we were describing earlier or yes. the kind of book you were writing when you were first trying to turn these stories into a novel. Um, so I'm really, I'd be really interested to hear, to hear more about that. I also think your characters and the relationship we have to those characters, you as novelist, your novelistic voice and us as readers, both on the blog or on the, in, in print form, um, it's painfully acute, that relationship. I don't quite know what you're doing and how you, how you do it. But you <laughs> I'm making you care. <laughs> yeah, well, you, re I mean, you really are making us care. And I'm quite a grumpy reader. It's quite yeah. difficult to make me care, but you, you made me weep quite yeah. a bit um, of last year. Well, and I think I, I do make myself cry as I write it. And that's when I think, okay, I'm onto something here. Mm. I'm a great crier anyway, I'm hopeless. I wish I, I wish I hadn't been given this particular gift. <laughs> but um, uh, I think what, what's, what's become clear to me is that what moves me to tears is something in the region of when I'm in the, in the presence of truth, when, when I've stumbled upon something, okay, this is what I'm really feeling. So sometimes when I'm talking to someone, I feel myself welling up and I think, okay, there's something here. So I think it's something about identifying that and being open to that process. So when I'm writing about my characters and, and their thwarted hopes or the moments when they manage to forgive themselves or one another, and that moves me, I think, okay, this will probably move my readers as well. Um, and also that sense of, which I think probably most writers have, of when, when you're looking for an idea and looking for inspiration and working on a project, it's as if you can hoisted a, a satellite dish and you're receiving all the time what's in the air, what's in the media, what's in social media, what's in your life, what's what the weather's doing, all that stuff is is coming in all the time. And you're somehow synthesizing that. Um, and so I, I think if I'm feeling this week, if I'm feeling little and lost and despairing the chances are my readers are as well. So therefore my characters will be feeling that. And that's, I think, the, how you get hooked into caring what happens to them because it feels so close to what's going on in our own lives. And again, with the caveat, people like me. So there may well be, there will be huge swathes of the population who would approach my books and think, you know, you know what a wuss or, how snowflakey <laughs> or whatever because it, because it's I am I think we can only write out of our own experience uh, obviously you can do research and imaginatively putting yourself in another person's shoes but instinctively I'm gathering information about people rather like myself yeah. I wish that wasn't true but I think partly the way social media and the internet is skewed it's increasingly the truth that we're fed uh, a slightly more exaggerated version of what we already like. <laughs> so um, that's that will tend to have that effect, I think. There's a fascinating tension or paradox in your work as well that you do bring us so close to these characters, um, painfully so, as I say. But at the same time, your narrative voice is um, sometimes a little bit like a zombie. It feels kind of hungry for brains and it moves between different character <laughs> brains. Although yeah. although narrative voice is often quite explicit and says, I'm now going over here. At other times, it's not explicit at all. And without being told, we're suddenly in someone else's brain. And I was, again, as I say, I went back to your, your first book recently and you do it there using switches and pronoun from she to I so that Mara becomes someone yes. I'm hearing about and someone I'm hearing from in your in your later work um even the pronouns aren't quite giving you the heads up that this is happening but we are all the time being switched um between people's brains all the time i apologize for calling your narrator a zombie but there's something going on yeah, about no, i know i know what you mean i think i do uh, i quite like that actually feed <laughs> me <laughs> but it's partly that just that i i'm i think um in an interview that between Barack Obama and Marilyn Robinson about everything, really, two huge minds in conversation with one another, it, it, wonderful stuff. But, but I think Obama says something like, I think the most important lessons I've learned about being a citizen, I've learned from novels. Mm. And I thought, ooh, interesting. And he said it's, it's to do with empathy. And I think this is what fiction does it it increases our capacity to empathize by inviting us into 
the consciousness, apparently, of people unlike ourselves. So what the great trick, the con of fiction, is that it creates the impression you can know what it's like to be someone else. And the particular way it does that, I, I think, though other writers might have a different opinion, isn't through the first person, because the first person is, is much more like someone telling you their story. Uh, although they can tell you what it's like to be them, you're not in their head, you're listening to It's like you're on the other side of the, of, of the table in the coffee shop or in the bar listening to them telling you really intimately but but it's as if you're on the other side but but um what the a close third person point of view can do is because it slides between the third person narrator and the head of the character in and out in and out all the time it really is like virtual reality i think low budget <laughs> that you are in that character's head it's curious, I, it, um, but I think that's 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 what how I imagine it to be, um, and that's why it's so powerful. But in Angels and Men, so my first novel, I'd also slip into um, so so that close third person. It, we, the technical term that we use in creative writing circles is free and direct speech, um, or sometimes people talk to it as talk about it as deep third person that it's right in the head of the character so you so you don't have he thought or she she said to herself that's all stripped out but we understand that it's a thought process but it blurs with with the narrative voice as well so sometimes it's indistinct but alongside that I also included interior monologue so that's when it switches to I and it goes in and out of that um in a way that I, so I, uh, that was an experiment. Um, and to be honest, I actually find it irritating now. <laughs> and I would iron it out. <laughs> but I think it worked in that book. And I, I had an interesting experience of um, when my new publisher bought my backlist and reissued them with a new jacket um, in 2015. Um, I had to proofread those books I wrote some 20 years ago. And that was. Uh, I decided I would take the opportunity to correct any factual errors that had been pointed out to me. And people do like to do that. They do like to write to writers and say, oh, by the way, <laughs> I think you'll find that actually, they think, thanks for that. Anyway, so I, I corrected any of those that I'd been alerted to, but I didn't edit what the, the things which were in the realm of, of kind of taste and style. It seemed to me that would be as, as scurrilous as... as without permission, editing someone else's book and changing the, the tone and the style. Um, it seemed I needed to honour the writer that I was then, but also the readers who loved that book. Um, uh, but it was a, it felt a bit like, you know, like an X. <laughs> but the things you loved about them at the time actually make your toes curl later. I'm, I'm sure this is this is the experience of all writers as you develop your craft and you just get older. You think, oh, that was a younger woman's book. but that's fine. I wouldn't write like that. I couldn't write like that now. I don't think heart on the sleeve in quite the same way. It's a it's a really brilliant book, but I can understand why you might feel that way because it feels like that switch between third and first person, for example, um, as a t as a single technique, you've you've radically pluralized that so that your shifting is from third and first person and across a multitude of different first people um, uh, through all kinds of different techniques. I guess the obvious one being. Um, inappropriate question marks at the end of sentences, we suddenly know we're in the head of Freddie May, for example. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, we do, yeah. Um, so that's creating a voice that feels right for the character. So that, that I, don't, I don't use first person in the um, Linchester books, I don't think, do I? Apart from it's Jess, when, when Jess is writing her journal, that's first person. You but that's interesting. I'm just no. Uh, the only first person is the narrator. Okay. May or may not be me. <laughs> yeah. Version of me, obviously. Um, no, but that's that's what the that's the sign of close third person and free and direct speech. That you hesitate after you close the book mm. to say confidently whether it was first or third person. So it it has. I think close third person has all the advantages of first person plus extra manoeuvrability yeah. so you can pan out a little bit. 
The reason I'm pausing around whether there's first person in your work, and obviously I defer to you around this and not to myself, <laughs> but I think I think some characters, particularly Jane, speak to themselves rather than speak to the reader and there talk about... Yes, wrong she about calls that. herself a silly cow a lot. And, and, <laughs> uh, yeah, so maybe, yes, so there may be some interior monologue creeping in. To Quite different. The, yeah, okay, yeah. I accept that. She may well be doing that. <laughs> but, it's, but it's a different kind, and again, it's folding... <laughs> but I wouldn't in. cast a whole scene in the first person. Yeah, yeah, and I think the technique we're talking about here is really internalising the reader in a sense of being in someone's head in, in yes. unnerving and exciting ways. Um, yes, and I think that's what, that's what, what um, partly a conscious decision. So when I was writing um, the earlier three in particular, I had a lot of interaction on, on Twitter and in the comments on the blog, um, perhaps a bit less so now. I think maybe some people have voted with their feet and are no longer on social media because, because it's so toxic for a lot of people. I do understand that. But but um, so people would say, oh, I really hate this character. He's really driving me mad. So I would say, right, I'll make you care. Next week, I'll make you care. I'll make you care. So one particular interaction with someone who particularly hated the bishop. And I said, I'll make, I'll make you empathise. And the next week, the it, feedback on, on, on Twitter was like, damn, you very nearly did. <laughs> Um, this must be what um, uh, uh, is it? Good conversation. What, what's the phrase about that we used to use in church circles? I've forgotten about about you know not not fighting over gay marriage. Anyway, we 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 had a we had a phrase, and it, it, this is what he, he was saying in response to that. This must this is what we we must be supposedly talking about, um, listening to one another and. And having a having a sensible conversation, um, shared shared conversation. That was, I think that was it. Um, yeah. So so it was quite conscious. I thought. So the way I think. Okay, I'm going to make you go. How am I going to do that? I'm going to show you something from this character's past, when his father died at the age when he was sixteen, and he was running a race, and he won because he thought he saw his father at the finishing line, and it turned out that his father had actually crashed on the way and was already dead when he crossed that finishing line and thought he saw him. Um, and that's just such, to me, I, you know, even as I'm describing it to you now, I can just kind of feel the hair on the back of my neck going, because I could imagine that happening and how I would then feel, and therefore how someone who hadn't liked this character would think, oh, you, you're kind of suckered into, into caring because, because that, who wouldn't care about that situation? The, pay, the pathos and, and the, the grief, um, and, and therefore, before you know it, even though you hate the character and all that they stand for, you kind of see where they're coming from. And that's, that's again, this thing about extending your empathy. Um, and it's something that, that is very hard to, to do if, if you're certainly in lockdown, but even beforehand, if, if your interactions were on social media, and you were just, it was very polarised. Any sense of nuance and, and, and I, I get what you're saying is very difficult to achieve. So I think fiction is that space where you can, because it's private as well. Nobody's policing how you're, how you're responding to the characters. And nobody's saying you can't root for them because they stand for this. <laughs> you can do what you like. It's in the privacy of your own head. You can cry over the fate of a character who in real life you would disapprove of or feel obliged to disapprove of. So it's private, but, but also you can test out sympathies and ideas that you wouldn't, you wouldn't actually want to do publicly because you might get shouted at. Yeah. So that's the contribution, I think, that fiction can have to big debates. And it's an example of um, how blogging can transform the form of a novel where you are responding to a, a reader, well, to a reader's response. But it's also another example of um, that comparison you made right at the start of our film uh, to 19th century serialization, where you've got people like Dickens very aware <laughs> of the public response his, his books are generating yes. before he finishes them and uh, in, at times responding. Yeah. Yes, um, I think there was a, I think Dickens probably did um, 
start serializing before he'd finished the whole novel. I think mm. there are others who thought that was ludicrous. Um, and, and, you know, you, it was a hostage to fortune and you could end up uh, falling under a, an omnibus. <laughs> then, then the readers would never find out or you could fall ill and not manage to, to, to finish it. Um, happened to Dickens. Dickens, um, which happened to Dickens. Dickens dies partway through Edward. Oh, Edward Drood, he did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Damn. Yes, I'd forgotten <laughs> that. So, so okay, yeah, yeah. When that was so, the first instalments were published, and then the the uh, the, the magazine had to say, "Oh, sorry, <laughs> bit of a cliffhanger." <laughs> it really is a mystery. Make it up for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I wasn't clear. I think it might have been Trollope who who, who disapproved, or mm. um, uh, or someone else who wrote Vanity Fair. Who wrote Vanity Fair? Thank you. I do know this kind of thing, but the more I focus on the word, the yeah. more. <laughs> no. That happens to me going into libraries and bookshops in the days when I used to do that. It was somehow passing over the threshold or delete all titles and authors from my head. I just stand there. And then, <laughs> and then the assistant would come and say, Can I help you? And then they'd say, I'm looking for a book. <laughs> will you come to the right place? Do you have any? We <laughs> <laughs> have many books. I have a blue cover. <laughs> mm. um. Yeah, as you can probably tell, Catherine, I'm fascinated by form and process. Um, so again, it really just summarise for the benefit of our listeners, and then perhaps we can move on to thinking about your teaching. But I, I really do think what you're sharing with, with us, which is very kind of you, is really exciting for thinking about the shift in your novel writing from um, inserting into uh, real-time uh, events material that you already have to the, the this kind of second half of your, your, your recent series where um, purely by dint of the fact that we're all living through remarkable historical times, <laughs> time in a way starts um, taking over the narrative. Um, it stops being mm. a context and a background and starts being a kind of key driver for what characters are doing and how they're feeling, whether they can leave their home or not. Uh, yeah. for example, I think it's, it's completely fascinating hearing how, yeah. you, how you yourself respond to that, including how you respond to your readers on the blog and how that can shift. What happens? Yes, I have. I hadn't um, had quite as much in the way of um, this character's annoying me. Please do something about it, which was definitely happening before. Or else I would I would pose questions. Um, some sometimes because I simply couldn't get the answer from Google. Things like, what would this character, who you know, who everyone now knows, Father Wendy. Um, they, they get what kind of church background she, she okay, what kind of vestment sh would she wear to a midweek communion service? And you can't Google that because, I mean, how would you Google that? Mm. Uh, I could ask around, but just, just for convenience, I put it out on Twitter and then and then came back to us later and this, this, it was still molten with people arguing about oatmeal cassock albs and whether these were a good thing or not. But I thought, that's it, that's the answer. Someone will know some exactly what she would wear because of their experience of the church um, and their their insight into the character. Um, so I might have just kind of not sounded exactly the right note. So that was one thing I was doing back then. Haven't really done much of that this time. Um, so so, I, but I think in order to have a sense of continuity threading through the whole thing, um, there are certain thing elements. One is the church year. Um, which, which has, has sort of the eternal rolling spheres <laughs> going round, almost in that sense of comfort that no matter what awful things are happening that seem so large and overwhelming, the, the, the date of Easter is fixed. It's, it's linked to, to the moon. Um, and it, it's rooted in, in Jewish history. Um, and it, it, Easter will be there long after I'm not. Um, and and um, when COVID-19 is, is for the history books the way Spanish flu was. Um, so there's, there's that, the sense of, of the, the, the rhythms of, of the church year of Easter, of Lent and Easter, um, which adds a, a, a sort of 
it's sort of like I, I think of it as the the big pipes on, on a cathedral organ that that they're too low for human hearing, but they're just throbbing and vibrating, and you can feel it in your from your feet right right through. So it's that's going on the whole time, um, and also um, I had the theme of the um, the names of the different full moons. That, uh, uh, which provided a certain way of gathering some of the information. And also the, the device of Jess's journal, which always brought some kind of comic relief to the, to the story and, and a kind of naive child's view of, of the pandemic, which was quite fun to inhabit. But, but the main thing really that, that keeps it going is, is the question of what would my characters be doing? So, so when uh, I learned this really in, in the third book, Realms of Glory, when I felt I'd run out of, I didn't really have a plot and that panicked me occasionally. Um, uh, and, and then the political events seemed to be taking over. When, whenever I had a wobble, I thought, stay close to the characters, stay close to the characters. And that will be the answer. What would they do next? What are they doing now? What are they going to do next? Um, so that was, that was what I, that's what I did. So logically, Okay, what would Father Dominic be doing? Oh, he's got his his mum with him. He's got dementia. Okay, so how's lockdown going to play for him? And then I just started writing that scene, um, maybe based on something like uh, weaving in things that I had actually observed. So I went out one morning to our garden, and there was a um, I, I thought, oh, a sparrowhawk's got a pigeon. But when I got closer, it was actually an owl. I, I didn't know that ever happened. So that found its way into the blog, but I gave it to Father Dominic and his mother. Um, so it's that fictionalising of, of, of my journal, basically. That was what I was doing to some extent this year. Yeah. Fascinating, completely fascinating. Thank you. Um, we'd love to hear more too about um, what it's like to teach creative writing. So you're at um, uh, Manchester uh, Met. I should say 20 years ago, I was at Contact Theatre in the new writing department. Um, so not too far away from your place of work. Um, but I mean, um, yeah, do you mind telling us a bit a bit about about your uh, your teaching? And um, my clock is now going off, so ignore that. But uh, um, house does what are what are the relationships between the kind of compositional challenges you told us about in your creative work and mm. the things you're getting your students to think about and to do and to try? Yes. Um... I'd got, it wasn't really until I started at Manchester Met in, in 2012, I think it was, um, that I found a way through this problem I'd had with trying to, to write the story about a cathedral close. Um, and it was, it actually came in, in conversation with, with a colleague who's also a novelist, and we were both teaching on the same master's unit for the creative writing course. So we basically structure it where we have a, a reading unit where we look at, it, depending on whether people are doing poetry, um, fiction, uh, script or place writing or writing for children, um, they, they will have 10 texts that they look at in the reading unit. Um, and we're reading as practitioners, reading as writers. So we kind of under the car bonnet. How have, have they done this? How is it put together? How does it work? And what can I learn from this for my own creative process? So we were talking about, this is Reading Novels 1, and it's a, a series of 10 um, 20th century, second half of the 20th century novels, one of which was The Prime of Mystery and Brodie. Um, and my colleague observed that... Um, the the rule show don't tell which is a kind of kind of accepted good practice in, uh, of how to write at the moment um that, that she completely flouts that she flat out tells us that and she tells us what's going to happen to the characters before it's even happened this character will die in the hotel fire running up and down and this character will be famous for sex and and um it's just in the, that moment of discussing that a light bulb went on and i thought that's what i need to do i need to just abandon the effort to write properly which which was just feeling so horrible it felt like i was impersonating my younger self aha and here is the author writing another catherine fox novel that's what it felt like it was just it felt it felt contrived and bogus and horrible and i couldn't do it 
I just thought, okay, I'm just going to tell. And I thought, and I'm just going to pretend I'm a Victorian novelist. So that was the moment uh, of breakthrough. And I don't think it would have come if I hadn't suddenly been back in um, having to think critically in, uh, and as a practitioner about other people's texts in order to teach it. How does it work? How might that help me? That that moment happened. But it was also to be in a community of other writers again, rather than just in my lonely garret. So it's been immensely creative and, and fruitful, this uh, sense of being part of the Manchester Writing School. Um, and um, so this this year, I've actually after a period of, of teaching on the workshop units, which is where students um, submit chunks of their work in progress for feedback from their peers and from the tutor. Um, so I've been, mainly been doing that. I was brought back on to Reading Novels 1 this year for, for an online condensed version of that course, which was just like a crazy roller coaster of two novels a week, but really, really stimulating again. So in helping our writers in, in that reflective process of reading and relating that, sol solving the problems of their own um, structure and narrative voice by looking at how other people do it. And that you could see all the time that those light bulb moments. Ah, so that's why um, Carol Shields is doing, I can see how that would have, ah. So that's just so exciting. That for me is that's the, those moments of aha, uh, the, what make writing, um, teaching creative writing a joy. And I know there are voices out there who say, oh, you can't teach creative writing. And I would say, well, we can at the Manchester Writing School, so come to us then. If they can't, we can. Um, so is it, to me, it's as ludicrous as saying you can't teach, you can't teach music. People are either musical or not musical. They just need to pick up a, a, a violin and, or, or start to sing and, and they can teach themselves. So, well, maybe, maybe they can, maybe they can. But there is a huge amount to be gained by following a course of study and you know, practicing and then getting feedback on your improving technique from people who are a bit further along the road than you are. To be so, it's a sort of a mentoring relationship, really. That's how I see it. Rather than, okay, in this session we're going to teach you how to do close third person using free and direct speech. I mean, we we can put on sessions like that, but that tends to arise out of the process of workshopping people's work rather than a how-to guide because you you those you can buy. And you could teach yourself. Um, so, you know, yes, yes, of course, you can become a successful novelist or poet without doing an MA in creative writing. But it is one really energizing way of, of, of giving yourself a boost and taking yourself seriously. I think that's the thing. So I think when you're starting out, I remember the point at which I decided I wanted to leave academia this as I was completing my PhD. Um, and thinking, I want to be a novelist. Okay, that's how I'm going to think of myself from now on. But you just feel such a twit <laughs> saying that to people. So, oh, um, I um, I am a writer, and they go, oh, if it, what have you had published? Well, I have heard of you. And you think, <laughs> no. Um, so it feels it feels just uh, very it was sort of awkward and embarrassing, or or claiming too much for yourself. But but to say I am a student, I am learning this craft. I'm on this path now. I can now think of myself as a writer legitimately. That's that's also hugely important, I think. Um, so, and the same, I think, from joining a writer's circle or going on a, a, an online course, um, starting to think of yourself professionally as a writer. These are all, there are many ways of doing that, but, but doing, doing a master's in creative writing is a very obvious one. Absolutely. And, um, we're living through a moment, I think, of crisis in uh, the arts and humanities um, more generally. Um, and 2020, I think, has really exacerbated that. And in a way, that's that's what this platform of Bitlit is designed in part to try and, and, and combat. Um, and uh, even those of your students who don't go on to become creative writers will be much more creative and critical readers and thinkers. And that's exactly yes. what we need in our present historical moment as we battle things like um, propaganda, uh, social media disinformation, yes. politicians who lie yes. to us, etc. Uh, it's really important and exciting what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I think it, it is true to say that that 
the reason our students are enrolled is in almost every case because they they have a drive and an ambition to get published and obviously we can't guarantee that um and we can certainly share our experience. In fact, I was uh, doing a session last night with a colleague, uh, which proved quite popular. It's just an extra one-off session, uh, overcoming anxieties, setbacks, and disappointments as a writer. And we were talking about, you know, the, the awful things that have happened to us, but how that's a disappointment and a rejection or a bad review. That's not the final word on you as a writer. That's not the final word on you as a person either, if you're inclined to personalise everything, which I think many of us are. Um, so. So even though they, they may not get the, their dissertation published, they may not have an early success. I think it's they're very much on that path, and that's, that's how they're orientated towards publication. Um, but but um, I don't think any of them are under any illusions that they can give up their day job in order just to be a writer and earn a living from that. I think some, some people can, but it's, it's, I, you either need to be extremely fortunate um, or work at it night and day. It really would be full time trying to generate enough income from from freelance writing. Yeah, and the people yeah. who say you can't teach, the people who say you can't teach anything, I think, are the people who've had the um, cultural capital and the privilege to get them to particular places. And the whole point of education is it transforms opportunities and benefits yes. and gives them gives them to people who otherwise wouldn't have them. It's incredibly exciting. Yes, I, yes, yes. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Catherine, in that spirit, um, if we move to the end of our conversation then, we, we end films by asking uh, what literature is, and you're welcome to answer this as professionally or as personally as you like. You might like to answer it on behalf of some of your characters or your novels. It's entirely <laughs> up to you. But yeah, where does that word sit in your vocabulary and how do you feel about, about literature as a concept? Um, I think I hesitate because, because there's a tendency for that word to sort of live in in a on a rather erudite bookshelf so people i think immediately think of literature as as some kind of high art form that's inaccessible and and they ought to know about it or they should have read it at school but it's not really for them mm. um so I, I it's not a word i use very much i don't think um so i would talk much more about writing i think mm. Um, as being something broader and more accessible and more readily understood as something which is uh, people can take ownership of a bit more readily. Um, though I was hesitating there because, again, I, that I might be betraying a, a, a huge amount of un, un, unacknowledged privilege that I think of writing and reading as, as something everybody does. Mm. Whereas that might not be the case, that, that people have other uh, resources for um, gaining information, gaining or being entertained. Writing isn't the first thing they think of. Um, but I, I think anything that, that um, invites people in to an imaginary world or to, to a world of information that they wouldn't otherwise have experienced is is to be celebrated and if we're going to call literature that then oh, so much the better but i think it needs to come at, down from the the sort of the trophy cabinet uh, and be a more of a mug on the table that uh, maybe a very beautiful mug um, but but one we actually use rather than than revere but <laughs> don't ever engage with i love that thank you a mug on the table and not a uh... A, bit, a trophy on the cabinet. I think that's um, that's really fantastic and exciting. And your your work is such a great example of that in the way it bumps us up against Twitter and recent uh, C of E debates around um, gay sex, for example, gay marriage. Um, mm. And at the same time, we're being asked to think about biblical texts from thousands of years ago. There's something very contemporary, something very local, and something very massive and ancient happening all at once in in your work. Um, so yeah. I feel like you transcend the mug and the and the trophy. <laughs> in, in, in that kind of so it's sort of a bric-a-brac store maybe <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I love, I love. like a charity shop something like that I really miss those in lockdown just because well, you never know what you're going to find no it's not globalized it's not it's not um it's not specifically targeted 
it's not tailored for me, you know, in the way that, you know, Instagram is so spookily, um, suddenly, you know, promotes this thing I'd never heard of, but, but is absolutely the kind of thing I would want. How does it know that? This is very, is it, so it's, it, charity shops are the opposite of Instagram marketing. They're, they're just, you know, pre-loved things from other people's lives that, that remind you of childhood or look beautiful that you, uh, and they're all kind of randomly displayed and, and, and there's, there's no, there's no predetermined, um, marketing strategy at work in a charity shop. Um, you may well come away with nothing, but it's been an adventure. So Absolutely. that's that's my books, the charity shops. <laughs> it's a great summary. I look forward to accompanying your narrator flying around uh, in the near future. <laughs> it's my nearest. It's the only kind of traveling I'm doing at the moment. So I'm looking. Yeah, forward same to here, really. Get my little walk around the block <laughs> once a day. <laughs> well, thank you very much both for this conversation and for your work. It was a real pleasure to talk. Thank you very much.